All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to be together, to glorify you, to, uh, to exalt and rejoice in your coming to earth to die for us and to be with us and to bring us to your presence. Uh, we just thank you for your grace and we pray that you'd open up our minds and our hearts to understand the scriptures and we pray that uh, you'd open our ears to hear and we thank you for your grace and amen. All right, so today we are continuing our series called the GCF Vision. Uh, the vision or the GCF vision is a term that we use a lot, but we haven't really had a thorough teaching explaining what it is, not since Greg was teaching RCF. So the GCF vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. There's basically five of them. Number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based instead of performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. So, let's see. We have been on subsection five, having a victorious eschatology for about four weeks, it feels like. And for the last few weeks, we've talked about problems with pessimistic eschatology and how Matthew 24 doesn't actually teach pessimistic eschatology, neither does Revelation, neither does 2 Thessalonians 2. So hopefully we've made it clear that pessimistic eschatology or pessimistic expectations about the progress of the gospel don't line up with Scripture. But now that we've talked about that, we're going to examine reason to take it a step further, and not just having a neutral expectation about the progress of the gospel, but having a victorious expectation, a confident expectation about the progress of the gospel. And uh, I kind of hope we finish it today, but I also think we might not. All right. We're going to start by looking at passages that point to gospel progress. We're going to look at 15 of them. Let's start in Daniel chapter 2. Let's read Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 45. So, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he was greatly troubled by it, so he searched throughout all of Babylon and wanted, like, a wise man who could not just interpret the dream, but he thought they might lie to him. So he wanted someone to tell him what his dream was, and he wasn't even going to tell them. He's like, if someone's going to really give a, a real interpretation of this dream, they have to tell me what, what I dreamed, and then tell me the interpretation. But God is good, and God enabled Daniel, and Daniel did that. Amen. Daniel says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the shaft of the summer freshened floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king... 
the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose... And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making new rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and let a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partially of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as, uh, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes and feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break its pieces, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand that broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So this kingdom that ends all other kingdoms, this is the kingdom of heaven. We all agree that this is the kingdom of heaven, but there's a few other things that I want to point out. The kingdom of heaven came in the first century. After all, why does God only mention three more kingdoms after Nebuchadnezzar? Why only tell, foretell as far as Rome? Why not mention Great Britain or the United States or anything between Rome and now? if the kingdom of heaven were only coming in the future. The reason God only tells Nebuchadnezzar as far as Rome is because the kingdom of heaven is coming in the days of Rome. Because during the days of Rome is when Jesus came to earth and died on the cross and started his church. So the kingdom starts in the days of Rome, and after that, in comparison, history is irrelevant. So it starts in the days of Rome, and it's going to grow and grow until it fills the earth. That's what we see in Daniel, and we see the same thing in the New Testament. Let's look at Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. By the way, three measures of flour is a lot of flour. It's 60 pounds of flour. But once yeast gets in it, it's going to work its way through the whole thing. 
So we see, just like we see in Daniel, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is going to start very small and grow and grow and grow until it fills the earth. And again, in the New Testament as well, we see reason to think that the kingdom of heaven started in the first century. After all, that was the main thing Jesus preached to people. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But 2,000 years away is as far from hand as can be. That'd be like me saying that something I own is in China and it's at my hand. No, it's not. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven was at hand because it was near. It was near to the people he was preaching to. Not only that, but Jesus explicitly says that the kingdom of God started in the first century. Let's look at Matthew 16, verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He's not saying that there's some people who are going to live for 2,000 years hiding under the shadows and no one's going to know about them. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is coming in the first century. It's coming like a mustard seed and it's going to grow and grow and grow over time. All right. So those are some verses about the kingdom. Let's look at some verses about the king. Let's look at Isaiah verses 9, Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. A good Christmas reading. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So he says of the increase of his government, there will be no end. This passage isn't saying that the rule of Christ is going to be established all at once. It's going to increase and increase and increase over time. That's what it would look like to have a government whose increase has no end. Let's also look at Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now I want to point out, the start of, this fulfill, the, start of the fulfillment of this passage happened in the first century. He says, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. When did that happen? at the triumphal entry that we celebrate every Palm Sunday. Mm-hmm. Happened in the first century. And his kingdom's going to grow and grow until it's from sea to sea. Let's also look at Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. 
There, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his, del- his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. It's the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, or the viper's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now this thing about uh, the lion lying down with the lamb, we're going to get to that and explain that in a few chapters. But I want to point out, Again, the the beginning of the fulfillment of this passage started in the first century because he's talking about Jesus and how the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. That's talking about Jesus' baptism. Let's look at Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This passage starts off talking about Jesus and how God's spirit will rest on him, and that was a first century thing. Let's also look at Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Now, I believe that this coming to the Father to receive the kingdom already happened in the first century, and I believe Jesus is rather explicit about it. Let's look at Matthew 26, verses 62 through 64. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these things, uh, these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of Man. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, from now first century, 30 AD on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So the high priest didn't live 2,000 years. He's dead and gone. And Jesus told him that he would see Jesus coming on the clouds. But that's not a coming turf, that's the coming to the right hand of the Father. 
So part of his receiving a kingdom is that all nations, peoples, and languages shall serve him, and that started and has been incrementally increasing since the first century. Let's also look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So he must reign until all his enemies are put underneath his feet or until his kingdom is fully established. If your kingdom isn't fully established, not all your enemies are under your feet. He reigns from heaven until his kingdom gets fully established and then death gets destroyed. But death gets destroyed at Christ's second coming. So this passage seems to imply that before his second coming, his kingdom is going to be established, fully established. Let's also look at Isaiah 2 verses 1 through 4. The word that came to Isaiah, the son of Amos, uh, that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord out of, from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So there's two comments I want to make about this passage. So this is talking about the latter days, whatever that means but it could still be the church age, given that according to Peter, Pentecost was the start of the last days. Mm -hmm. Let's look at Acts 2, verses 14 through 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what has been uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who comes upon on the name of the, calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But Peter is saying that this, this last day's business, what the men of Judea were looking at, that is this last day's business. 
That is the Spirit being poured out. Peter is saying the last days began at Pentecost. The other thing I want to point out about this passage in Isaiah 2 is that in the New Covenant, the house of God is the church, and the church is also the New Jerusalem. That's the point of Revelation, the the switching out of the old Jerusalem for the new Jerusalem. So when, when it says, let us go to the house of God that he may teach us his ways, it means let us go to the church that we may learn God's ways. But I want to point out some passages that show that in the new covenant, the church is the house of God. Let's look at 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, you may know uh, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. The, the Greek word that gets translated household in the ESV doesn't, it is the word for house. And there's other translations that just translate it house. And it's the same word that gets used in Matthew 23 for house, which we're going to look at in just a second. But first, let's look at 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So in the new covenant, the church is the house of God, not the temple. Why not the temple? Well, Jesus disowned the temple. Let's look at Matthew 23. The temple stopped being the house of God when Jesus disowned it. Matthew 23, verses 34 through 39. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He's talking about 70 AD. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Then he goes on to say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Previously, Jesus referred to the temple as my father's house. And here, when he's prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, he says, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus disowns the temple and then prophesies its destruction. And the new temple of God is the church. So those are just some passages uh, that talk about, that give reason to expect gospel progress. Those are the ones I wanted to comment on. Now we're just going to read like seven more that don't need commenting on. They're pretty face value statements. Let's look at Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 86, verses 9 and 10. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wonderful things. You alone are God. 
Psalm 102, verse 15. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and the kings of the earth will feel your glory. Psalm 138, verses 4 and 5. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks to you, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Habakkuk 2, verses 13 and 14. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people, people's labor merely for fire, and the nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. How much do the waters cover the sea? Yes. Completely. The, waters are, the sea is made of water. And lastly, Revelation 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So there's a lot of scriptures that points to the idea that the gospel is going to make major progress. But there's, there's one reason that idea gets somewhat debated. So the first passages we looked at and commented on, I'd say it's pretty clear that they all start in the first century. It's pretty clear from the context they all start in the first century. Uh, but some of these other passages we just read, they don't mention any time at all. So people wonder, when will these prophecies be fulfilled? There's three considerations, three ideas that people consider. Number one, the church age. Number two, a future millennium. And number three, the eternal state. So we're going to try to look at each of these. All right. I don't, be I don't believe it will be in a future millennium. The reason I don't think it will be in a future millennium is because I don't think there will be a future millennium at all. I think the millennium is meant to describe the time from 70 AD up until the second coming. But I, I want to say, even if there is a future millennium, because I could be wrong about that, I think it, there's probably not, it's not likely, but even if there is a future millennium, that doesn't mean that things are going to get worse and worse until it starts. They could get better and better until the inauguration of a future millennium. And if you're going to believe in a future millennium, I'd recommend you believe that the gospel will make more and more progress until it does start. Because as we've seen in the past few weeks, the Bible doesn't give any reason to think that gospel progress is going to get worse and worse over time. And again, we have what Jesus said in Matthew about the kingdom of heaven starts as a mustard seed and then grows and grows and grows. And the kingdom of heaven definitely came in the first century. Jesus was explicit about it. That being said, I'll share my reasons why I don't think there will be a future millennium. Number one, nowhere do Jesus or Paul mention or imply a gap after Jesus' second coming before the final judgment or the eternal state. Nowhere. The only place you could get that idea is Revelation 20. 
But that makes me think it's not the correct interpretation of Revelation 20 because it doesn't fit other passages of Scripture. Other passages imply that the judgment and the eternal state happen immediately after Christ's second coming. Let's look at five of them. Uh, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it shall be exposed. Sounds like the final judgment in the eternal state, right? No gap. Let's look at Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. You know, it sounds like he comes and then judgment. No gap. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So Paul says, I would say rather explicitly, that on the day the Lord comes is when those who haven't believed the gospel receive eternal destruction. That's final judgment. Paul says rather explicitly that it happens on the day Christ comes. Let's also look at Jude 1, verses 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes of 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This doesn't imply a gap, coming and judgment. And lastly, let's look at, even though we already looked at it, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So it it seems pretty clear here that at Christ's second coming, death is destroyed. But if you have the idea of a future millennium, death has to exist in it. Because in Isaiah 65, when Isaiah is talking about the new heavens of the new, and new earth, he also mentions death, which we're going to get to hopefully today, but maybe next week. So the idea of a future millennium seems to contradict 1 Corinthians 15. All right, so that's my first reason for believing there won't be a future millennium. Not that there's no millennium, it's just not a future one. 
All right, my second reason is that the events leading up to Revelation 20 probably happened in the first century. There's three reasons to think that. First, the angel said the events from the book of Revelation were going to happen soon after it was written. Let's look at Revelation 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Let's also look at Revelation 22 verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And we look, when we looked at this two weeks ago, we compared it to in Daniel. Daniel's given a very similar vision, and Daniel gets told to seal up the words of his vision because the time is far off. But they were clearly about things that were going to happen 400 years later because they were about Greece and Rome. That very strongly implies that whatever Revelation is talking about, it wasn't going to be more than 400 years later. It was going to be during the first century. And my last reason for thinking the events leading up to Revelation 20 happened in the first century is that the beast was already on the earth at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. Let's look at Revelation 17, verses 9 and 10. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom has fallen. One is, one is alive, one is existing now, the other is yet to come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So again, I think the beast is Rome, but whether it is or not, the beast was on the earth at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. So that's the second reason I don't think there will be a future millennium. If the events leading up to Revelation 20 all happened in the first century, odds are the millennium started in the first century. Um... Now I'm kind of going to give three reasons that kind of clarify how the millennium could be current or how that would work. First off, a thousand years can simply mean a long time. It wouldn't be the first place God used the term a thousand to simply mean a lot. And also, if the millennium does start in the first century, God has reason to be vague about how long it will be because... If he tells you explicitly how long it will be, and it starts in the first century, then we all know when the second coming is going to be. But he seems to not want that. But anyways, let's look at Psalm 50, verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields. For every beast of the forest is mine. I had to copy and paste that correctly. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, a thousand is always literal. Is he saying he doesn't own the cattle on the thousand and first hill? No. Every beast is his. Is he saying there's only a thousand hills with cattle on them? Exactly a thousand? Not a thousand and one? Not 999? No. There's way more hills on earth than that. So in this case, God is using the term a thousand just to mean a lot. All right, uh, moving on. Another reason I think the millennium could be the time between 70 AD and Christ's return is that Satan could be bound up now. 
so we know that in Revelation 20, though we don't have time to read it, uh, Satan gets bound for the thousand years, and then there are Christians who reign with Christ for a thousand years. That, that's the thousand years. So what are, what are those two things mean? What are they talking about? Could Satan really be bound up now? Well, first off, bound up doesn't necessarily mean ceasing all activity. It could mean that, or it could just be some type of limiting. I also want to say that all the passages, you know, we might think to ourselves, but the Bible says Satan roams about like a roaring lion. Yeah, but that was written before Revelation was written. Everyone agrees that Revelation was the last book of the Bible to be written. So it wasn't saying he will roam about like a roaring lion. He was saying he does or did. If he, isn't, if he doesn't now, then he just did. So that doesn't contradict that. Also, just because Satan is bound doesn't mean demons and other fallen angels are bound as well. We give Satan way too much credit. We treat Satan like he's omnipresent. Like often a, a Christian will be going through a difficult thing or some sort of demonic oppression, and we say, Satan's really attacking me today. If Satan's not bound, he's probably not attacking you. He's probably somewhere else. Some other demon is attacking you. Satan's not omnipresent. We give him way too much credit. Even If Satan is completely bound, there's demons and demonic angels that aren't. And lastly, let's just look at John 12, verse 31. This one's a fun one. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So Jesus said in the first century that Satan was going to be cast out in the first century. He just face value point blank said that. So what does that mean? Well, it very well could mean whatever John is talking about in Revelation. So I would say Satan very well could be bound up now. Also, I think the reigning for a thousand years is probably the intermediate state. So let's look at that passage. Let's look at Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them. Uh, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So in the ESV, he says, um, he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded and those who had not worshipped the beast. But this might just be the same group of people. Um, other passages translate it as it's the same group of people, but you could translate it either way. Let's look at Revelation 20, verse 4 from the New King James Version. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received the mark upon their foreheads or their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So in... The NKJV translates it about the same group of people. But either way, these people are dead. These are the souls who have been beheaded. But he only mentions the dead. He only mentions the dead reigning with Christ. What about the living? Are the living reigning with Christ? 
He doesn't seem to say so. He's, in the ESV, it translated, it came to life and reigned. Well, you can only come to life if you're dead. You're not going to come to life today. You are alive. Only the dead come to life. The living are simply living. So the fact that it only mentions the dead reigning is why I think it's the intermediate state. And also, some, I've heard the idea before that this coming to life is Christians getting born again while on earth, but I don't think that could be because John says he saw the souls of those who died for their Christian witness, and they came to life. So if it means born again, the souls of those who died for Jesus were born again? Were they not born again before they died? Why are they in heaven? Like, that doesn't work. This can't mean that. But also, why do only the dead reign? That's why I think it's the intermediate state. By all other means and all other views, there should be people living at Christ's second coming. Not everyone should be dead. All right. Um, so those are my reasons for thinking there won't be a future millennium. And if there's not a future millennium, then these promises won't be fulfilled in a future millennium. But we have... It's only 1247, 1147, I mean. Uh, let's, talk about, <laughs> let's talk about why I don't think it'll be in the eternal state. So as we saw earlier, uh, the expansion of the kingdom of God starts in the first century. And so as Christ's government increases over time, that will be during the church age. And a lot of the passages we looked at were pretty clear about that. But there's more than that why I think these passages aren't talking about the eternal state. It seems people will still die and that sin will still exist. Let's look at a passage we didn't look at yet. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall it be heard the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of the tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen uh, shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they, call, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not destroy or hurt in my, all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So Isaiah explicitly mentions that death is still going to be a thing. Like if he were just trying to say that people are going to live a long time, he could just say... Um, you know, people are going to live a long time. But he explicitly mentions death happening. And not only that, he explicitly mentions sin. The sinner shall die at a hundred. Sin doesn't happen in the eternal state unless you're in hell. 
So since there's death and sin, this is not the eternal state. And also whatever is being talked about in Isaiah 65 is probably the same thing being talked about in Isaiah 11 because uh, they look very similar. In Isaiah 11, you know, it mentions the nations coming to Christ or Christ having influence over the nations. But death and sin are still mentioned and to me that means it can't be the eternal state. But also it seems kind of confusing like... Uh, the, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together? Well, what does that mean? I, I want to bother to mention, I don't think this passage is saying that the nature of animals is going to change during this period. I think this is a metaphor, and it's talking about people. In the New Testament, sheep or lambs are metaphors for Christians, and wolves can be metaphors for those who persecute Christians. So saying the wolf will lay down or get along with the lamb could be a way of saying those who persecute Christians will stop doing that and will live at peace with them. Those who persecute God's people will stop persecuting God's people. Because after all, I don't think lions are going to stop eating meat while humans are still dying. That would be rather strange. But if Isaiah 65 isn't talking about the eternal state, odds are none of these are. None of the passages we've looked at today are talking about the internal state, most likely. So if, if these promises aren't going to be fulfilled in a future millennium, and they're not going to be fulfilled in an eternal state, that only leaves the church age. That's all that's left. And even though a lot of these passages don't tell you when they're fulfilled, some of them obviously are about the church age, like Daniel 2 why, why is only Rome prophesied? Because the kingdom of heaven comes in the days of Rome. And when Jesus talked about the mountain filling the earth. Now, I'm not going to finish all that I wrote because I've got a few pages left, but I will mention one more thing. Um, so an, another evidence I would give for this is just Christianity spread throughout history thus far. I think that's another reason to consider that these promises are probably about the church age. So Christianity started with 120 disciples in the upper room. After Jesus' death, it seems there were only 120 disciples who stuck around, and they were in the upper room on Pentecost. According to estimates from Pew Research Center, they would estimate there's 2.38 billion Christians today. Now, I'm sure a lot of those aren't true converts to Christianity, but let's just take, an, let's say 60% of them are false converts. That leaves us with a billion. That, from 120 to a billion over 2,000 years is an average growth rate of 0.8% per year over 2,000 years, on average. Now, if there are a billion Christians today, which might be debatable, but if there are, and Christianity were to grow at 0.8% for 300 more years, in 300 years, we'd have 10 billion Christians. A lot of people talk about how bad they think things are right now, but honestly, given all that's going on in the world, and all that the, like the whole world, and all that the Holy Spirit has been doing in the church, I think the stage is set for major growth in this century, above average growth. <laughs> I had a really fun section planned, but I think I'm going to save it for next week. We were going to address the objections, but I'll give a preview. Uh, we're going to talk about 
all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. How does that work out? The narrow gate that Jesus mentions twice, or maybe not twice. He mentions the narrow gate and the narrow door, and they may or may not be the same thing. Uh, we're also going to look at 1 Timothy 4.1 when Paul says that in, you know, in latter times, people will listen to doctrines of demons. And then we're going to look at, um, in 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 3, where he says, in the last days, people will be lovers of self, and so on and so forth. And that'll be fun. But uh, it's going to take 20 minutes, so we're not going to do that today. Let's jump ahead to our conclusion. All right, so in conclusion, the Bible says that the kingdom of heaven will grow until it fills the earth. It says that point blank. And I believe it says that that growth starts in the first century. That's why Daniel's vision only tells as far as Rome. And I would say there's good reason to believe the uh, Christianity will make huge progress throughout the world before Christ's second coming. All right. Today's communion meditation is titled, Your Sin Can't Separate You from the Love of God. Let's read Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So my, my point for this is your sin can't separate you from God's love. If you're a child of God, then your sin can't separate you from God's love. Paul says nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Well, guess what? You're part of all creation. You're not, not creation, which means you're part of all creation. And that means you can't separate yourself from the love of God, no matter what you do. Not your sin, not your stupidity, not your foolishness, not your stubbornness. Thank God my stupidity and my stubbornness can't separate me from the love of God. But none of that can separate you from the love of God. So let's praise them as we come to the table.